Hello, everybody, and you're very welcome to this week's edition of The Shortlist. My name is Holly Fawcett. I'm the Director of Content here at Social Talent. And you're so very, very welcome to this week's episode here in uh, early December, Wednesday, the 7th of December. And today we are going to be talking about how talent intelligence data combats reactive workforce decisions. And I'm sure many of you have noticed over the past couple of weeks, some of you may personally yourself have been very personally impacted by some of these decisions. Um, but in very difficult economic uh, times, most business decisions are really boiling down to numbers and those numbers relate to dollars and cents rather than personal uh, decisions. And what if that data that we were relying on, those numbers that we were relying on, was humanized? Instead of a cycle of overly reactive firefighting to particular investment decisions, whether that's we save money over here, we invest money over here, how can workforce planning look to the much longer term to create a more sustainable, steady approach. That's what we're going to be talking about in today's episode using talent intelligence data, because we hope that this might offer a very different perspective. So joining us on the shortlist today to chat about this is none other than Toby Culshaw, who quite literally wrote the book around talent intelligence. Toby is the talent intelligence leader for worldwide operations and consumers at Amazon. He's also the author of Talent Intelligence, Use Business and People Data to Drive Organizational Performance. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll dig into what on earth talent intelligence really is, how this might offer a more balanced perspective to workforce planning and strategy, and then more importantly as well, how this data can offer a much more alternative route to worst case scenario planning and mass layoffs as we've been seeing lately. So Toby, hello, you're very welcome. Tell us all about yourself, how you got here, and, and this book that you've written. Yeah, thank you. Well, firstly, thank you very much for having me. That's a, a heck of an intro. So I appreciate that greatly. Um, so Toby, I run Talent Intelligence for, uh, we've changed our names. We're actually worldwide Amazon stores now. Oh, Big name change. Okay. Uh, same difference. So essentially, that's a part of our business. It's anything from that you're buying from us as Amazon, so Amazon.com, our Whole Foods businesses, anywhere you're buying anything from us. Uh, through to how it gets to you. So it's the warehousing, logistics, pilots, how we want to get to us um, apart from the associate workers. So I don't, I don't cover the army, literal army of workforce uh, associates that we have, which are some amazing people. But um, my team don't cover that section, <clears throat> but pretty much everything else in between. Um, it's a fairly big organization, so a few hundred thousand people within, within the org. Um, and we cover the full gamut, full remit, all job types, levels you could think of within there. So pretty big and broad spectrum. Um, and we cover talent intelligence. So, you know, as, as we can dive into what that means for, for uh, us as an industry, can't necessarily dive into Amazon specifics, but we can dive into what Amazon uh, talent intelligence is, how it all fits together. Um, me as an individual, I come from research, sourcing, headhunting, search, that sort of stuff. Uh, I guess from from day one, I was used to kind of getting information, getting data and trying to influence through sourcing intelligence. And it was it was really a few years back where that started to scale. And I started to realize that actually, if I got earlier in that decision making chain, and that decision making process, I could make my sourcing teams lives way easier downstream. If we affected mm -hmm. that decision upstream, rather than waited for that decision to be made, and then trying to kind of influence the impact of that downstream with the sourcing intel, um, life was just easier. So started on this kind of talent intelligence journey then, and that's two, uh, 10 years ago, something like that. And then uh, for the last 
probably seven, eight years, been very much pure play in that TI space. So I was over at Philips previously, a Dutch technology company, um, where I ran talent intelligence there for a number of years. And we, we built an internal consulting function doing TI. And then I've been at Amazon for the last couple of years building it over here. Fantastic. Um, can I dive a little bit more into that? So you were at Philips before that you were at SAP, kind of working on similar kind of talent intelligence kind of things. What was the journey from from sourcing, so to speak, and, and how to make, as you're saying, make your sources' lives much better downstream and, and kind of really bringing those decisions um, to the fore much earlier in the process. Can you tell me an example of a story about maybe how some of those decisions have played out or some of the impacts of those decisions and, and what they meant for those organizations? Yeah, sure. So some of the earliest, in hindsight, pure play TI work we, we were doing was um, back in my Talis days, so many, many moons ago. Um, there are a number of things. So, for example, we were sourcing for some um, warehouse workings. We had a manufacturing site, and uh, we just couldn't get candidates. We couldn't find any candidates for this location. Um, we couldn't understand why. It, we, it was a, a site that we'd been in for 10, 15 years. It, it was always been very stable. We just couldn't see what was going wrong. So we started diving into it a bit deeper, and we realized the, the particular industrial estate we were on, 15 years ago when the site was launched, it was a really bustling industrial estate, loads of talent, really good good location, good infrastructure, um, really worked well. Lot, lots of people for us to, to approach and, and to, to have ta local talent. 15 years later, we were literally the only people left on the estate. There was no one else there. Um, recruitment was, was all remote from that location, so no one had realized that that, that was the case. Uh, and we there was genuinely no one to, to, to poach from. There was no one in the, in the location. So um, we looked at that, looked at the feasibility of that site, essentially going forward, tied in HR and all the other project teams. Uh, and eventually that, that site got moved and we moved to another location. Um, a similar sort of time frame, we were looking at some cybersecurity uh, work and we realized, and, and this is the thing about TI, it's always worth remembering, it doesn't always pay off. Your mm -hmm. best of intentions doesn't always work. So, um, and we can dive into that as well. But, uh, you know, we, we were looking at the a particular type of cyber accreditation. It was a, a cyber security accreditation that uh, the government, to do any kind of government contracts in the UK, you had to be accredited in this, this particular accreditation. And there were genuinely only a dozen people in the whole of the UK with this accreditation. And to be accredited, I'm getting really granular, sorry, I'm getting really geeky. But to get accredited, uh, you had to have one of these people on your team to get accredited. You couldn't just send your team wherever to get rubber stamp. They, you had to already employ one of these people, then all your team get accredited, then it spirals out and keeps going, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we were looking and we were struggling from a sourcing perspective. You know, we, we'd approach these people. They weren't making huge mega bucks. They were making 30, 40, 50K. We'd offer them 60, 70, they'd get counted 90. Uh, it was the, the counter was just aggressive because everyone right. knew if you didn't have this person, you can't bid for government work. You couldn't be accredited. Mm -hmm. So uh, my team at the time made a, a, a business proposal to take them all, get all of them out of the market. Even if they were on 30, 50K now, give them 120K, give them 150K. It doesn't make a difference. Just get them out of the market for an entire year uh, and, and you'd have no competition because no one else would be able to bid for government work. So we could get ourselves accredited. No one else would be able to get anything going and it would just be an open field. Um, obviously going to, the, the business loved the idea, but going to finance and saying, we're going to have 
a dozen people that are sitting on a beach somewhere and doing their work for a year or 18 months. Uh, they, they weren't so thrilled on the concept. So that, that one didn't really work. Uh, but we, we carried on on that thread of how can we use the data we're seeing from a sourcing perspective to influence decisions? And we, we ended up changing pay leveling for, for cybersecurity. We ended up moving our, our cyber HQ. They ended up moving, changing the, the whole uh, role descriptions and, and, and lots of different things within that space that was all coming from initially sourcing data. And, and I think that's the, the key for me is when you start looking at the data we see as TA, we see a lot of really rich information, but we're really bad at bubbling that up. Really, really bad at bubbling that up in a consistent way to decision makers. We can bubble up to the hiring manager. The hiring manager doesn't generally care. They think we're making excuses to why we're failing, but we, we struggle really to bubble that up and, and consolidate that through to a decision maker that can actually affect a decision upstream. Um, and, and that's really at, at, at its crux what, what TI is all about. It's all around bubbling up to get upstream. Oh, Very good. We've got a guest. Oh, we have a little guest. Hello. Good afternoon. Um, when it comes to that talent intelligence piece, though, what are the key stakeholders then that you're influencing? Who are they? Um, at what sort of level in the business are you talking to on a on a regular basis then that folks might need to inside other organizations if they want to start implementing TI where they come from? Yeah, it's it's really at its core around who is the decision maker. That, that's the number one. So it could be directors, it could be VPs, it could be the C-suite. Um, generally speaking, you find that the, the C-suite is, is more around thought leadership and they're looking further out. Um, it's usually that VP, SVP type level that are actually making the decisions that, that impact the business on the day-to-day. -day. So um, generally, I'd say it's that director VP. Everyone's speaking your microphone. You're, they can hear you on the microphone. What? That's Holly we're talking to now. Hello. Hiya. <laughs> Um, so it's really that, that, that <laughs> it's really that that VP level generally. It's that decision maker generally, um, and it, you're you're really looking to impact upstream wherever the decisions are being made. So if it's a centralized organization, hit those central functions. If it's decentralized and it's the decisions being made in the business, move out to where the customer is. It's all around identifying who the customer is, who's making those decisions, and then moving accordingly. <laughs> I will. Uh, I'll take the instructions from your from your little boy there on your lap, certainly, and and, and make sure that they go Ooh, back upstream. I, I um, <laughs> take your time, Toby. <laughs> oh, I love it when we have unexpected guests on the shortlist. He is so very welcome to come back anytime. Um, future, so <laughs> the future. I tell you, it's all about future talk. Absolutely, future Intel is right. We keep growing them. Um, so, can you describe for me maybe what some of so obviously we have those decision makers in terms of you looking really looking at senior vice presidents and, and very senior directors within organisations to really make those decisions. What are the types of data that they're looking for? Are they looking for your rough work? Are they looking for conclusions? Do you find a difference with the types of organisations that you're dealing with? You know, whether it's a Dutch organisation who probably come from a much more um principles first type culture uh versus an american type organizations where they might be just like give me your conclusions toby like what kind of intelligence or data or conclusions are they looking for from talent leaders to start making decisions about mm. where we host manufacturing facilities or sites or whether we take all 12 
cybersecurity professionals in the whole country? Yeah, great question. So I'd, I'd say the culture of decision making will is generally de- dependent on the the country that 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 organization was formed in. So if you're uh, a, a, a German, it's going to be quite hierarchical, quite structured as a, as a default state. If you're uh, in, a, in a Dutch company, it's lots of decisions by consensus. So lots of very uh, general opinion. Everyone's got the opinion to and a, a power to veto. Very much consensus decision making. American organizations are generally going to be um, fast decision making organizations. Not always fast to transform, but fast to make decisions and look to move quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say that the, the decision making process can can change dramatically. Uh, the mechanism for delivery can change dramatically. If you're in a, um, a, a, a B2C type uh, company or a, a, a lot of organizations nowadays will be very PowerPoint driven, very much around take me on the journey. I don't, I don't want to get into the Excel, I don't want to get into the data points. Take me on the journey, talk me through this, walk me through this, show me the, the, where we're going from and to and what this, this, this whole journey is going to be. So understanding how to create that journey and take people along with you is really important. But then other organizations are going to be um, very, very data first. And it's going to be, uh, you know, high engineering organizations. Um, they could be long form text. Amazon were famous for our long form text. We don't do any PowerPoint here at all. It's all long form documents. So that the mechanism for, for delivery can change. It could be a, a dashboard versus a white paper versus a PowerPoint. So the mechanism mm-hmm. can change and the delivery mechanism can change. But essentially, all leaders are really looking for the same thing. They're all wanting data. Data is your your absolute friend. Um, it can be really hard because psychologically, anecdotes uh, and gut feel, if you try and combat that with data, the natural reaction subconsciously, people don't even do it consciously, purely subconsciously, is to double down on the your initial gut feel. Mm-hmm. So you're, if you're saying, if the, the leader is saying, I really like this location. I went on a site tour there. There's some really great people. And you say, but the data says that the, there aren't enough people. Naturally, they're going to double down and say, well, no, I've met I've met the really good people. I know they're really good people. I've been there. I've seen it. I feel it. I know that. Um, so you've got to be really careful about how you're positioning the data, understanding how different functions within your organization uh, position data. So is it an Excel first thing? Do you want reams and reams of data that people can analyze themselves? Is it a, do you know what, just give me the three key talking points you want me to take away this meeting from, and then everything else I'm going to dive into in my own, my own leisure. So understanding kind of that mechanism, I, I hark back to mechanisms a lot because it's a big thing with the Amazon culture, but understanding those mechanisms of how decisions are being made, what data people need to make the decision, and being open with that, being open like, you know, this is what I can get. This is what's out there, but what what are you going to need to make a decision here? What are your key uh, parameters you care about? Is it supply? Is it demand? Is it cost? Is it competitiveness? Is it the the overall infrastructure? Like, what do you really care about? Because quite often, depending on who who is the the actual core decision maker in your organization and uh, who's got the power, they're going to care care about different things. Line and business leadership, they care about access to talent because they want the best people they can possibly have in their teams. They want all those high performers. They really want to drive it really, really in a, 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 as high performing team as possible. If you're talking to finance, they might not want that. They might want really cost effective solutions. They might want low attrition. They might want uh, you know high duration within the organization and big stickiness within an organization and low competitiveness. So depending on who who the decision maker is within that chain, 
you're going to have a slightly different answer and a slightly different um, pro proposition, essentially. Um, and and it's not always obvious who the decision makers are in companies. Quite quite often, there are functions that will will drive core decision making. It's either going to be finance, it's going to be sales, it's going to be ops. There's strategy. There's usually a, a function that really rules the roost, depending on your organization and the organizational culture. Mm, that's really interesting, actually. I wonder who or how um, somebody who is working in, in recruiting today who, who really wishes to to bubble the information, all the insights that they're gathering as they go about their ordinary recruiting work and they're mm. noticing this trend, they're noticing, you know, for example, we just can't get the caliber of talent that we seek um, at this particular location. Can we do something else? How do they go about rooting out who the key who the actual decision maker is to in order to then influence at the right level do we go to a committee do we did we just go go to our skip level manager like what how do we go about that how that actually happen um uh, don't be afraid of asking the question like uh, ask questions and, and quite often i think in ta and i think this is my gut feel is this is inherited from from agency side um we look we like to look like we have all the answers we like to look perfect and, and that, you know, we're giving this perfect down selection of candidates and everything is great and hunky-dory and we're like the duck, duck floating across the water and we don't show the legs feverishly going away underneath. Um, because of that, we're, we're sometimes scared to ask questions and look naive and, and, and be open with, with, with these things. Um, ask, ask your hiring manager. You know, so go to them and say, look, we're really struggling to recruit in this location. I don't think this is the, the site for us for our next five-year expansion plan here who makes a decision around where this next five years develops? Is it mm. you? Is it your boss? Is it your boss's mm. boss? Is it the country leader? Like who's actually making these, these strategic plans mm. and then just go and ask and go and talk to them. If it's strategic workforce planning, time to strategic workforce planning. Most companies don't have SWP. In all honesty, most companies you'll look at, and even if it's called SWP, when you start diving into it, it's actually operational planning. They're only really looking the next 12, 18 months out. They're not necessarily diving in as far ahead as you'd like. Um, mm. But somebody will have an eye on, on the future. Somebody will be looking at it going, what's this five-year horizon? If this all goes well, if this goes according to plan, where are we trying to get to? And it's it's just around just slowly picking at these threads until you get the right person. It, it's a bit like... Uh, uh, the old fairy tales, you know, you kiss enough uh, frogs, you're going to get a prince. And, and just keep kissing <laughs> those frogs. Have those conversations and just be open. You know, it could be finance. It could be strategy. It could be your, your market leaders. It could be the business leaders. It, it could be a whole range of different people. But just keep asking those questions around, I'm seeing this problem. Who needs to make this decision if we need to, to go further with this? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I myself was... Um you know i was at a, at a lecture around innovation for for a whole weekend which was riveting stuff um interesting way to spend a weekend certainly about business innovation but the um the difference between a sort of an 18 month versus five year versus 20 year roadmap and strategic plan for an organization is incredibly different um and it's not really until you recognize the the components of such a long term view that you realize all the things that i've been working on in the past have generally been incredibly near term and yeah. and we think we're being strategic by looking a year down the line but <laughs> wait till you see five years down the line um I, you know it, it looks way 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 different from here what kinds of things have you seen when you've been moving from a much more 
you know, much more tactical workforce plan now to a very actually strategic workforce plan? What? How? How different does the air feel up there? Yeah. Um, good question. I, I'd love to say it's massively different. In, in a lot of ways, I think it's very similar. I think it's repositioning. So I think a lot of the data, data inputs, data outputs are very similar. Um, people are struggling with the same sorts of questions. It's just leveled differently. Uh, you know, instead of struggling on a, a, a wreck and hiring it, whatever the role is in a given location, it's more around the question of, is that location even feasible? Have we got that? Are we going to be in the same shape as an organization in five years, 10 years time? Do we yeah. want to be in the same shape in five years, 10 years time? Um, I think the, there's probably a, a bit of a, a, a cultural clash going on between people that are looking tr truly long-term out, so five, 10 years and making predictions and trying to steer organizations in a, a really long-term thinking way um, versus people that are looking at it going, well, actually the markets and, and the, the, the whole industry and the environment is moving so dynamically at the moment. I don't think anyone can, can forecast five years out. You could maybe go a year out and, and give a best best estimate. You could maybe go two, three years out and say, this is where directionally we want to be going. But I don't think anyone could really go that far out with any kind of degree of certainty. And I think it's having that transparency, transparency to say, okay, well, look, directionally, this is where we want to be going. Whether it's actually these functions, we want to move from high-cost country to low-cost country, or these, these areas we want to invest into from an M&A perspective and expand upon, or these functions we think are going to be the future of our organization, we need to develop this out, these are the skills we need to go to. Um, all of them are great. They're all directionally the right thing, but I think we've got to be uh, smart about these things and saying, if this is the direction we're going in, in three, five, 10 years' time, and this is what we're seeing from a 12-month perspective from a TA slant, for example, how do we tie those together? How do we get those demand signals so we go, well, actually, we know we're pushing in this direction. We probably don't want to keep hiring in this location. We want to start you know, trying to manage those hiring managers' expectations early to say, well, actually, look, if the average tenure here is, is two years on a roll and we know we're going to be shifting over there in three, maybe we don't want to be hiring as heavy in there. Maybe we want to get ahead of the curve and get some leaders on this other side. Um, so it's it's a lot of it's just around trying to get ahead of the curve so that we make our own lives easier. Mm. Yeah, I think that's it in a nutshell, right? It's it's um, understanding that as a um, as a direction, what we're going in, rather than just constantly seeing the next hurdle that's in front of you going, okay, Grant, I have, and, and like almost accepting that requisition at face value by saying, perfect, no problem, yeah, I'll find you that, that person in this location, great, off I go. Um, mm right rather than understanding what the what the long-term impact of that particular hire is going to be on this function or this entire business um 100 and, and yeah. it like it's hard honestly it's it's really hard um particularly if you start kind of getting into um, organizations and looking at kind of the headcount planning versus the strategy planning versus the finance planning they're all going to have different versions of the truth and they're all going to have slightly different answers and mm -hmm. you know, depending on the organization, your your finance planning might be really granular and really clean. You can get a really good demand plan for, as TA to say, actually, we know for the next 12 months exactly what we're going to hire in, in a given role, given location, given level, everything, really clean and crisp. Other organizations, it might be, we know we're going to be hiring X number of headcount, plus or minus 50%, but we have no idea. It's just, we're going directionally in this way. So you're understanding okay where where do we think we're going to have flex where do we think we're going to have some areas we have to challenge on and, and equally where are we just comfortable where are we comfortable saying do you know what 
these roles, they're not business critical, they're not time critical. If it takes another month, that's fine. That's not, not put our resources into worrying about those ones. We know we've got you know a stable of, of candidates that will be fine. It's going to be okay. But these ones, these are really business critical. We can't drop the ball on these. And it's not quite often the criticality piece that people fall into the trap of saying it's the senior stuff. And it's in my experience, it's very rarely the senior stuff is actually business critical. It's, mm. you know, if you're in a, a widget factory, it's the widget maker that's been doing it for 20 years and he's retiring next month and no one's actually flagged up that he hasn't got a replacement. And if he's not on the widget line, the widget isn't made. Like That's the business critical stuff. That's the stuff you really need to go, do we need that widget maker in the next 10 years? Um, and we see that, you know, truck driving is a great example of, of this whole situation where people have been recruiting short-term, medium-term. They've been looking, mm-hmm. you know, t- six, 12 months out. The truck driving industry has been saying for a decade, we're on our knees. We're collapsing. Mm. We, the infrastructure is not in place. We've got an aging workforce. We don't have the youngsters coming through. We're on our knees. We're in trouble. And then through the whole COVID period, obviously, it collapsed. And we had mm. some real issues on, on, on truck drivers. Now, in a really interesting situation from a kind of strategic workforce planning perspective, because you say, well, do we build up this the whole infrastructure? Do we build out the facilities? Do we build out the skill set and develop this whole next generation of truck drivers? Or do we say, well, actually, we've got automated driving coming in and you've got all these autonomous trucks coming in in the next 10 years, let's say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do we do to plug the gap in between? So do we do we go for human element? Do we go for the automation? And if we do either, what do we do about that, that gap and that variance in, in between? Um, and there's, there's going to be whole rafts of industries that are, are falling in a similar way. We've got knowledge cliffs coming where you've got the baby boomers all retiring. Granted, there's an element of unretiring going on at the moment as well, where people retired through COVID, thought, I'm putting my feet up. You've got a cost of living crisis and the economy collapse. I should probably go out there for a little while and try and earn a bit more money because it's a bit tight. Um, yeah. But we've got this whole knowledge cliff coming through where a lot of organizations, I don't think, are necessarily looking long term to think, well, actually, we've got a huge percentage of our workforce and our leadership are going to be leaving in the next three, five, ten years. What are we doing to backfill that? And it's it, it, it's hard because organizations generally now aren't looking at individuals to stay for a long, long period. It's not jobs for life. It's average tenure in organizations is dropping year on year. You know, it's now sub two years. That's very hard then for an organization to say, well, actually, we're really going to invest in our people. We're going to do leadership development programs. We're going to do a huge amount of training because it's really hard to keep them. So it's, it's, it's this paradigm of the, the old saying of, you know, what if we put loads of investment and training into people when they leave? Well, what if we don't and they stay? Yep. We're in this hard situation at the moment where we know these big ticket items are coming down the road. But how do we address that? How do we fix that stuff? That's really hard. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to get your insights as well as to how talent intelligence can be used for internal mobility. Because I think once you get to to the three-year mark within an organization, the the 10-year does tend to to stick even further. It's it's just once you can get them to that magic number of three years, mm-hmm. um, it's wonderful. But how can talent intelligence be used for those particular purposes? Like, for instance, understanding and forecasting when retirements are planned or probably going to happen. Um, yep when you are going to have board seats opening up, all that kind of stuff to really help to to retain the workforce that you do have. Yeah, I, I think it, this is a great example of where TI can't be an island. 
Um, mm. you, there is a danger with talent intelligence, and, and we see it with talent acquisition data as well. We end up being an island of, of, of data, and, and quite often talent acquisition analytics is, sits by itself. It's not part of HR analytics. It's not tying into the broader spectrum. It sits by itself in TA. Uh, TI is, is very easy to do that too. It's very easy to say, I look at the external data. You've got HR people analytics over here looking at the internal. We, we only do external. Um, that's really dangerous because you need to tie it together. You, you need to tie it together and, and understand what are the big ticket items coming down. HR analytics people and analytics teams can be your best friends. They give you those demand signals. They know the internal data, that they, but they might not necessarily know the internal skill set because a lot of internal HCM platforms don't have talent cards are granular enough. So they might say, well, actually, can you use those external platforms to cut back into our own workforce to know what skills we've got at the moment? Mm -hmm. If we do both those things and say, well, actually, we can see this is the skill set that the, the knowledge drop we're going to see from workers that are retiring in the next five years, is that even available in the market? Have we built a, an entire skill set that is so niche and so specialized we can't go and headhunt this from other companies and other competitors. So how do we then tie into L&D and training development or et cetera to say, we need to build the skill set internally because it's not going to be available externally. Mm. Or equally, the, we, we've built this skill set. The rest of the market's moved over to this now. Actually, we need to pivot. We need to do our, our entire tech stack or our entire offering from product sales to solution sales. We need to pivot because everyone else is moving in this direction and this is why. So you, you can absolutely use that external lens reflecting back in to see what skills you, you could be losing, but also that external lens looking at competitors and the landscape to say, well, actually, this is how everything's changing. We need to be aware of that for moving forward. That's really interesting, actually. And I think it would be like that kind of data, again, it's which stakeholder you're trying to influence here. If I knew as a sales leader that the way that we've been doing sales, while it works fine for us right now, you know, considering the product offerings that we're going to be bringing to bear in the next, I don't know, 12 months or whatever else actually uses a fundamentally different process or whatever else and my team are amazing at this old way and not great at the new way my gut is to go great I'm just going to bring in all this, all the newness and they'll just teach everyone else but actually they may not have that benefit either of bringing in newness as well there's a lot of organizations who are on hiring freezes right now mm -hmm. who have absolutely zero um remit whatsoever to to backfill um any churn um, and they're, they're relying on natural churn as well as a way to downsize their organizations and they desperately don't want to lose uh, lose folks as well. So, um, yeah, again, other ways in which we can bring in talent intelligence to highlight other opportunities within the business for like L&D or um, a culture change and stuff like that to really retain and and boost the performance of our people. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely does. Absolutely does. And we, you know, both my previous team and my team now, we do a lot of work with PX, so our HR teams, PXT, we call it here, people experience. But we do a lot of work with our HR teams um, to, to both benchmark, to, to look at how we can build this stuff moving forward. Um, but the point around the sales leader has just made, triggered a thought in my head where it, don't forget this stuff can be really commercially impactful as well. So yeah. tough economic situation. We often, obviously often think about how do we stabilize? How do we keep our people? How do we use that resource better internally? But equally, there are commercial opportunities with that. The, equally, the, 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 we're you know at a bit of a bear market. It's going to flip to a bull at some point. There, yeah. there is going to be a, a break. So working with that sales leader to say, well, actually, if I do competitive listening and I'm, I'm targeting our, our competitors and I'm looking at what jobs they're hiring for, what are the new VPs they're hiring, I'll be able to see 
when they when they start breaking that? When do they start breaking into a new market and hire a VP in APAC that they've never broken into that market before? When do they hire a VP of a product line they've never had before? Looking at the job descriptions, you can say, well, actually, they've never hired, they've never had this product before ever, but we can see they're pivoting and they're trying to build something back end. Time with your intellectual property legal, te legal team to say, well, actually, can you see what this competitor is doing from an IP perspective? Because we think they're trying to build something out here and they haven't had this before. Are they putting any anything through IP that we should be aware of? And suddenly you're getting this whole commercial intelligence sense where you're saying, well, actually, we can see what they're doing as a competitor, but it's triggering from the labor market data. It's triggering from the VPs they're hiring, from the, the, the jobs that they're, they're pushing out there. You can start seeing them pivoting as competitors much earlier than when they're going to go to market. They're not going to go, go and announce to, to the street that they're, they're pivoting in whatever direction, but you can see from what they're hiring and where they're hiring much earlier. See, this is why your executive search background matters so much. <laughs> that sort of um, covert intelligence gathering that one can build when they're um, when they're interviewing execs, or you know, like I, I, that that is obviously something that that happens, but it shouldn't happen. Um, you know, the sort of covert intelligence in that way. But yeah, it can be used. It gets super dangerous. So, so a lot of the. A lot of the competitor intelligence, I'd say you can do with OSINT, so open source intelligence. So looking at mm -hmm. job descriptions, uh, looking at press releases, looking at new hires that's often tracked on their corporate websites or look, tracked on their, um, on LinkedIn or, or whatever platform you're in and whatever jurisdiction you're in, um, looking at their, their press releases, looking at their, their company accounts, et cetera. A lot of that stuff, it, it's all open source. It's all out there. It's all being discussed and open. Um, when you're getting to that human side of intelligence, so human intelligence, um, and you are looking at primarily talking to people, you're primarily going to be looking at the, the interview process, you do get into a whole realm of data ethics. And, mm. I, and I think it's something that's, that TI has got to be very careful of. And, and we've seen sourcing and, and sourcing intelligence skirt around this a lot. Um, we've got to be really clear that just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. Just because we can inject our, our intel questions into a, a recruitment process or we can approach a, a VP to say, you know, we want to hire you for this job, even though you know there's no job there. You just want to dig into their, their, their experience and dig into a competitor. Can you do it? It's possible to, yeah, for sure. But should you do it? Is it the appropriate thing to do? Um, it gets into some really gray or black areas. And, and I think we've got to be really careful that we we set a precedent and say we're, we're going to be very clean on the data we use. We're, it's very sensitive information. It's very sensitive data we're using generally. We've got to be make, making sure that we, we don't fall into those traps because it's it's far too easy to um, because you sit there and think, I, I've got access to all this information, this rich, rich data. But we've got to remember these are individuals that are going through a recruitment process. They're vulnerable. They're, they're open. They're being transparent. We can't take advantage of that. We can't use this information unfairly. So we've got to be very clear about, from a data ethics perspective, where we draw, draw that line in the sand. I'm so, so, so glad you came to that, actually, because I know as a as a founder of the Talent Intelligence Collective and, you know, as if somebody wants to become a member of that, I'm, I'm sure they can also. Um, you know, is that something that you're trying to set, you know, as one of your kind of founding principles, like here is where our ethical line is. We now want to spread across all the TI or just even sourcing functions within organizations that as you're gathering talent intelligence, look, this is where we can go. This is where we can't. 
yeah, yeah, that's that's one of the things we set up. Yeah, for sure. No, um, <laughs> there's nothing formal in process. Like um, the, the the TIC was was founded uh, as a networking group primarily, and it's kind mm -hmm. of evolved from that and developed around that. But for sure, we've had many conversations with the group, and we have um, monthly monthly calls, and we, we have chats on WhatsApp and Facebook and, and every other platform you can think of. Um, data ethics has got, comes up quite a lot, and, and I think mm -hmm. we've got as we start broadening the field of TI. And we're seeing more people coming in from people analytics, um, from IO psych, from all these different, from economist backgrounds, like from all these different backgrounds. What's IO psych? Uh, industrial organizational psych psychology. Oh my God, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Some cool stuff that goes on out there, I tell you. Um, you, uh, uh, you, you wanted to see the cat. He's just coming to annoy me as well. So that's oh, cool. hello. Else is going <laughs> Loads of business today. Well. Thank you. <laughs> um, so as we bring in all these different individuals with different backgrounds, I think it's that they're holding us to account um, from a data standards perspective. Uh, and the reality is TA, TI, it's quite new to us, that the, the way we handle data and what we can do with data. We're used to seeing things from a GDPR perspective and personally ident identifiable information. We're used to seeing things in a CRM and you know safe harbor, et cetera. But we're not used to seeing, okay, well, how else can we use this from an Intel perspective and an intelligence gathering perspective? Mm -hmm. We may be used to seeing that from a exact research stance or from a sourcing stance, but when it starts scaling out beyond HR, beyond TA, beyond HR, into the business and commercial intelligence, it's all very, very new and it's, it's very scary. And um, yeah, we've got to be very, very careful how we play in those fields. Yeah, hundred percent. I I think it's, it's right to, to draw a fairly clean line in the sand where nothing feels terrifying or like icky to those who are doing the data research um, or then utilizing it, right? You, you want to be able to wash your hands and go, yep, this is fine. This is great. No one's going to come at me. <laughs> 100%. And, you know, we, we we always got to think, what's the worst possible case scenario? What's the worst headline that could be written about this data? Or if this gets out, what's the worst thing we could think? And, you know, even if you do things with the best of intentions, Sometimes it can go horribly wrong, and you just got to think, okay, well, just because I didn't mean for it to do that, that doesn't mean that that's not what's going to happen. Um, and I think we've got to be very clear from the start: whatever you're building, build it with the best of intentions, but with, with the worst case scenario in mind. Because if if you think something could go wrong, chances are it's probably going to go wrong at some point, and you just don't you just don't want that hanging over you. You know, that is a good, definitely a good line then for interviewers as well. Again, you're interviewing with people for the best of intentions, but whatever it is that you write down as your as your evidence gathering, imagine it's going to be published somewhere. So, like, please be kind and you know, factful, etc. <laughs> All of those things. Um, I oh my god, we are way, 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 uh, way into our time, and I probably have another twelve questions I wanted to ask you. Um, is there? Um, anything that you can be said, I think, around the transactional uh, sort of relationship that recruiters are and and sourcing teams are having at the moment to you know what they want to push into TI. Have you any advice about how to make some of those initial inroads? And I we spoke at the very very beginning around like who to go to and kind of um, to bubble up some of those decisions. But how do they make some of those initial inroads um, to becoming a little bit more strategic with the data that they do have today that might just build up to a much more talent intelligence function. Yeah, great. I think there's two different ways. I think there's uh, the more structured approach where you just start taking data more to your conversations. So easiest way when you're going into a brief and you're about to go into a hiring brief, 
make sure you've done some research beforehand. Take the data in at, at the brief stage. So you're setting expectations. You're challenging the manager on the skill set. You're challenging on the location. You're challenging them on the comp. They're, you're understanding the competitor landscape, et cetera, et cetera. Bring that to the conversation at the front. Mm. Biggest mistake I see across TA generally, and you know we've all been guilty of it, myself included, you're really stuck for time. You just go into that brief, you take the brief, and then it's only like six weeks down the line. You're like, oh, do you know what? We're really struggling here. I should probably do some research on this. You run some research and you're like, no wonder we're struggling. This is a terrible location with no competitors, with a terrible salary, et cetera. And then you take all that data to the hiring manager and they're like, I, I think it's too late now. It looks like you're scrambling for an excuse. So I'd say start just putting it into your standard workflow now. Get it in there quick. Um, get, get it in as early in your process as, as you can. Um, and that will just start see, seeding the, the data culture. I think in terms of the bigger ticket items, ask questions. Find out what people care about. Find out what people are, are looking at next year. Obviously, this time of year, looking at goal planning for next year, find out what those goals are. What's going to stop you? Generally, any CEO, what's your uh, biggest assets, your people? What's your biggest risk for not delivering, not access to the right people? It's the same all the way down. So just work out what the big ticket items are for your business lane or business area or customer group, whatever it is, uh, and just say, well, what's going to stop you from achieving that? And then you suddenly you've got the then you've got the points to say okay well then I can drill into that from an, uh, an Intel perspective, and then finally I'd say don't be afraid to uh, do what I'd call a loss leader. So sometimes you, the, there are big ticket items you look at and you think I know this is a problem. I talk to candidates all day. I know this is a problem. No one seems to care about it. But I'm just going to write a paper on this. I'm going to a paper do a little mini video, get whatever PowerPoint, whatever mechanism you want to choose. But I'm just going to write something and create this and just send it out there. Send it out to some leaders and say, look, I think this is a big issue. I don't know if it's on your radar. Just wanted to make you aware of this. Um, it's amazing how how often, whether it's working from home and, and return to work, work, whether it's hollowing out of cities in America and the fact that all the workers shifted out to the suburbs, how do you mm. draw them back in? Whether it, it's you know the amount of jobs, candidates that are applying for remote jobs versus uh, the, the number of jobs comparison on, on LinkedIn, so 50% of all applicants go to 15% of jobs that are saying remote. Whatever it is you think is a really hot topic, just write something on it and just send, send it out to some senior leaders. And, and on, honestly, I, I think the worst case scenario, you send it out, a leader gets annoyed that you've given them extra information. They tell your boss, I'm annoyed you've given me extra information. Like, no no decent boss is going to worry about that. It's going to be, okay, well, glad my team are looking after you. <laughs> um, so I'd say just be curious, be curious. There's always going to be people that want information. There's always going to be new things out there. So just be, be curious and, and start pulling at threads. Yeah, you're so right. There's a lot of people who are hungry for information and the hungry will feed, but, uh, Certainly the ones who are who are upset that you gave them more bedtime reading, luck we can do without them in our organizations generally, I think. The worst case scenario, you get more work into your function and your capacity gets slammed. That's the worst case scenario. Um, you know, and suddenly it's, well, how do I balance the reactive TA if it suddenly switches on and you're looking for a load of jobs again? Reactive TA versus the, the, the more strategic intel. How do we balance that out? And suddenly that's what, how you start driving into those conversations around, actually, I need to carve out some capacity for TI. Actually, we've got enough work. We need to stand up a whole TI function. And that's that's how you start building this stuff out. It's from those initial conversations where it's just, this could be curious. This could be interesting. Mm. That sounds really great. Um, and the last thing we ask all of our guests is to leave us with, with a final piece of advice. It can be 
something around this topic itself or it can be something that you've heard from somebody that you've just always lived by would you like to to share what that last piece of advice might be please I'd, I'd say just continue to be curious like the, the two things that i always hire against is proactivity and passion um as long as people are proactive and that they're curious and they're being passionate about what there is there's going to be interesting routes forward there's always going to be work needed to be done there's always interesting problems to solve um, I think we we get far too hung up within specific, specifically TA within our, our, our silo, and we get these false blinkers that this is our world and this is all we can engage with. Mm. No one's put those walls up apart from us. No other function in the business cares about those those walls and those barriers. Go out and talk to people. Go out and find out what what their problems are, because there's a lot of problems in organisations that can be solved with labour market data that we have access to. People just don't know it exists. So, um, yeah, I'd say be curious. Go out there. Just talk to people. Sounds good. Yeah. Proactivity and curiosity will will get you lots of places, including <laughs> to a talent intelligence role. Um, Toby, thank you so much for um, for sharing such amazing insights and stories. Uh, I really want to find out what happened to those um, 12 cybersecurity people in Palace um, <laughs> that, that your finance operations didn't go for. Um, but that's uh, that's certainly for another day. And just one last plug for, for your book about talent intelligence, uh, the use business and people data to drive organizational performance. Where can one get this lovely book? Uh, either on the Coogan Page website, which is the publishers. Uh, so that's CooganPage.com. I presume mm -hmm. I should know that. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> or on, on Amazon. Uh, Amazon is on there. Um, there. There is a hardback version, which is like £85. You don't oh, have it's to £85 get pounds now. It's gone up. <laughs> it's a bargain. It's a bargain of a book. Um, Demand pricing is not happy. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you don't have to buy that one. There are other, other versions available. Um, but, yeah, it's it's quite a long name. If you put talent intelligence, Toby Coleshaw, it's the only thing that comes up. So, um, yeah, feel free to find it there too. Happy out, happy out. That sounds great. Um, brilliant. Thank you so much, Toby, again. And join us then again for next week. Next week, uh, we will have Johnny back with, this time with Demetri Julius, on how leaders can nurture and support resilience in the workplace. Really be looking forward to that conversation at long last with Dimitri, who is the head of special progress. Uh, sorry excuse me, the head of special projects at Icon. Um, all right, that is it for this week. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Those of you who listened live and those of you who are on the podcast afterwards, thank you so much and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye.